Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we look at your word and show us what you would want us to see from this section of scripture. We ask you to guide and lead and your spirit to, to be what we follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be starting at verse 21. We have been looking at the idea that Jesus finished the sacrifices and he was a once and for all sacrifice. And we're going forward from there. Verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. How much more sore punishment suppose you shall he be thought worthy who has trodden under the foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. We'll stop there for a moment. All right. So verse 21, for having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here we have them saying, because we have a high priest, and remember we've talked about this, Jesus was the high priest. He offered a sacrifice before God and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't have to go back up and offer the sacrifice every year, which the high priest had to do before that. He says, let us draw near. And this whole idea of drawing near to God, being able to approach God. Now, we as Christians, we don't live in, a, you know, we haven't lived under the idea of not being able to approach God. All right, we have this maybe too easy an attitude of approaching God. Um, you talk to a Muslim or people of other religions, they're not able to really approach their God. Their God doesn't love them. Their God doesn't care for them in any way, shape, or form. And they don't see the idea of having a God who's approachable. Now, the Muslims pray five times a day. But if you watch them pray... Everything is a ritual for them to do. They have to do everything just so. They have to do hand motions. They bow a certain number of times, and they have to say prescribed prayers. They're not out there just saying, God, I love you, and here's my, here's my request like we do. The Jews didn't even really have that attitude toward God. You know, for the most part, the Jewish people, prayer, uh, prayers come from their prayer books. They just ritually pray these items. Now we see in the Bible there's many people who pray prayer, you know, give prayers of God like we are used to because they knew that God loved them and, and, and cared for them. But the average Jew reads a prayer from a prayer book. Uh, 
I believe the Catholics read prayers from prayer books, don't they? They don't, they don't really do any... Now, there's nothing that they won't do, but they, they, they're taught to read prayers. And many of the denominations have prayer books where you just read prayers to God. Jesus said he didn't want these kind of prayers that were ritualistic, just wrote, memorized prayers. And here the writer saying, we can approach God. God cares for us. He wants to hear from us. And this is a beautiful idea that we can approach God. And it's the idea that, you know, every once in a while you'll hear of this, you know, politician or a CEO that says, my children can come to me at any time. Just put the phone call through because they're my children. All right. Um, JFK, you know, his son went with him and played in the Oval Office because his son had access to his dad. This is a type of access that we have with the Father. We can come in and have meeting with him, and nobody stops us. <laughs> nobody says, uh, by the way, you can't, no, he's, he's too busy for you. You can't go in right now. We can access God with this idea of a true, sincere heart. And we're able to approach him, and it says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now, this idea, again, he's talking to the Jewish people. And if you go back into the Old Testament, into the Pentateuch, when they built the tabernacle, everything was sprinkled by the blood of the sin offering before they were able to open it up for worship. And they went out and they put the hyssop in, they put it in the blood, and they sprinkled it over the priest, over the altar, over everything. And so here he's bringing up, our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. And the blood is what covers the sin. And you know, we as Christians sometimes forget about the cost of our salvation. We just take so much for granted. And this is like when we have the Lord's Supper you know, each, each month. You know, I emphasize all the time the cost. What did it cost us to be saved? God died on the cross, became sin on the cross. When Jesus became sin, the Father and the Holy Spirit had to turn their back on Jesus. And ultimately, they paid a heavy price too because they were separated from part of themselves that they had never been separated for for all of eternity. And all of a sudden, a part of themselves was ripped away for a period of time because Jesus became sin. You know, when we always think about what did it cost Jesus. Jesus took the bulk of the punishment, obviously. He took the beating in his, in his flesh that we deserved. He took the splinters in his back because he's hanging on a cross. He suffered and, and smothered, you know, died of, of asphyxiation because you, you died basically of drowning on the cross because you could not get your air into your lungs. Uh, and he took all of that punishment. But the worst thing he went through is when the father turned his back on him for that period of time and they were separated. A pain that we can't even begin to fathom. Maybe if you've had a long marriage where you've really fallen in love with that person and you've really become one and one of, them, one, one of the spouses dies, you get a picture 
know, a very small picture of what happened to Jesus and the Father and the Spirit on the cross. Their fellowship had never been broken for all of history. All. And even before history, all of all the time before time, their fellowship had never been broken. And on the cross it was broken because Jesus became sin. You know, so they so they, they hurt, and that sin is what God sprinkles our hearts with, and then he gives us a brand new heart, as we're told in Jeremiah, and we're able to come before him. And then it says, our bodies washed with pure water. Now, there are those that will say this is baptism, and baptism is not what this is referring to. It is washing through the Holy Spirit's communication through the Word of God. The Word of God is called the water. <laughs> All right? Uh, now, we, while we're talking about baptism, baptism, I think, is important. It shows that we are making a commitment to live under new teaching. But that's, what, that's all it does. It's, it's, you know, as is simplified, an outward sign of an internal change. But it's the outward sign saying that I am choosing to abide by new teaching. This is why the Jews, first thing they always asked every time they got saved is, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, and when Philip was preaching to him, he goes, here's water, what keeps me from being baptized? Paul or Saul, before he became Paul, first thing he did when he said, when he got saved, he turned to Ananias and said, I need to be baptized. Why? Because they understood that baptism was an saying, I am going to follow a new, way of, a new way of being taught. And if you remember all through this book of Acts especially, you see whose baptism were you baptized under? They're going, whose teachings are you following? Tell me about this. And that's why most of them said John. All right, that they were talking to. And John was a, his message to them was repentance. All right, repent, which is a very important part of salvation, but it wasn't the complete turn and follow Jesus into a new life. So this is what was going on. And here he's saying, we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. The high priest has sprinkled us and sprinkled our conscience. Why is it important for our conscience to be sprinkled? Because Jesus says that our sin is under the blood and Satan likes to come up to us and accuse us and say, ah, your sins aren't forgiven. Your sins are so bad that God can't forgive you. We need to be very careful not to listen to that kind of a lie. There is nothing that we can do that will not be covered by the blood when we accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And this is important for us because Satan likes to try to convince us that somehow we are just so bad that we're not covered or we didn't say the right words or we didn't do the right things or we didn't walk the right way. And if you were just 100% with God, you would, you would be perfect. Only problem is I'm not perfect. I don't know of any person who claims to be a Christian that has been perfect. Now, granted, I've only walked with God for 50 years. Maybe somewhere out there there is, but I know that there's not. There's nobody who walks perfect with God. And Satan, if we do not let ourselves believe that we are covered by the blood, loves to beat us up. Loves to tell us how bad we are, how awful we are. Well, if you were a real Christian, you would have never have done that kind of thing. 
What if, they, what if everybody knew what, you, what you're like? And he attacks us over and over again with this idea that we are somehow worse than everybody else. Before we become a Christian, before we're saved, we're basically two parts because the spirit is dead. We're a body and soul with a dead spirit. We have a spirit, but it is dead. When we were born, you have a spirit, but it's, it is fallen, it is dead. It has no power to relate to God and be with God. You get saved, that spirit is brought fully to life. Now you've got a problem. You've got a body that wants to sin. You've got a spirit that wants to follow God. And you've got your innermost seat of emotions, your soul, that tends to want to follow the body, but can be pulled into the spirit's realm if you're following God enough. So we get this trinity, like you were mentioned, and it is battling with each other. And God has put his blood upon our soul and our thoughts. And then, in, as was said, we're washed. Again, this washing also has an implication to the Old Testament worship. The first thing the priest would do when they went to do their service is they did their washing in that big, you know, what they called the brazen sea. They would wash themselves for service. They would clean their flesh, the external flesh. So all of this is putting in, but it is right. God is saying, you have three parts, and I want all parts of you to be following me. And this is hard, because one of the problems that we have as people, and I've seen it over and over again, people learn things all their lives. Then they get saved, and the first thing they want to do, instead of just believing what God says about things, they try to go, okay, how do these spiritual things match up with what I already believe? And if you have some religious training, you know, some other uh, cult or other religion, now all of a sudden you're trying to match up some religious viewpoints with God's, God's viewpoint in your and you get yourself all confused. Now, and this is why it's very important for us to, and I say this all the time, when we're reading God's word, when we're being taught, we accept what he says. Now, I want to make sure that even if the church teaches something that's wrong, you believe what the Bible says. And this is very important. There are things that the average Baptist believes that are not correct, even though the Baptist statement of faith is good, most Baptists don't believe the Baptist statement of faith completely in their practice. I want to come in and say, I'm going to believe God's word no matter what the practice is. Because it is important to be able to turn myself to God's way of thinking. And it doesn't matter to me what anybody else thinks. I want to follow God. But the big news is God has sprinkled us with the blood and everything is under the blood. The blood of Christ separates us from our sin and the consequences of our sin. God says anything under the blood is forgotten. He does not remember it. He separates it as far as the east is from the west. He dumps it in the, the deepest sea. He just totally, by divine fiat, God says, I will not remember what is under the blood. That is good news. Now, when I'm walking with him as a Christian... I'm walking by faith and walking in the spirit and getting good works 
added to me by what the Spirit does through me, or I'm doing quote-unquote good works in the flesh, and God looks at those works and says, well, they're just filthy rags. We're going to get rid of them anyway. And this is the problem that we have. Many times people think, well, look at all the good that I'm doing. I have disciplined myself really well. You know, I would never lie, steal, cheat, you know, think bad thoughts. But, you know, this, thing, this problem over here, we'll skip that problem over here. But, you know, for the most part, I've got my life, you know, my flesh whipped and chained and, and my, my whip and chair is over there holding them in force. And even if you were able to do that, it's still your works. And God says they're worthless. And this is the thing. He wants our flesh crucified, not tamed, not quelled, but killed. And he wants to live through us. And he wants to do the work through us. And, you know, sometimes we look at somebody and go, well, that person's really got their life all, all together. They're a really good Christian. And we might look at a pastor, a teacher, or somebody who's been walking with God for a long time. But if you knew, if you could see in the heart on what they're doing, you might not be so agreeing that they're such a good person. And I, and I talked to this with a group of pastors one time. I go, how many pastors have preached a good message on Sunday morning that was not by the Spirit? They studied real well. They've been taught how to speak. And it was just a bunch of good works. And when they get to heaven, God says, well, that Sunday morning message doesn't count. That Sunday morning message doesn't count. That Sunday morning message doesn't count because you did it in your own strength. There's going to be a lot of that. A lot of things that we have done that God says, okay, those don't count. You didn't do this with the Holy Spirit. And for pastors, it's a big deal because we get paid to preach. People expect us to stand up there and preach on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever, whatever times we're supposed to preach. And we take it pretty serious, mostly. And we're going to make sure we're ready to teach. Even if we don't feel like being able to teach. And just like every other person out there, pastors have a hard time, usually on Sunday morning before it's time to come to church. That's when they're going to have a fight with their wife, uh, arguments with their kids, uh, you know, on the drive-in, you get upset because all the idiot drivers out there that don't know how to drive are blocking you and keeping you from going to work, and you're just not in the mood to be ready. And yet, everybody wants you to stand up and give a message. We need to be very careful about this. And I'm not saying we go out of sin, but I'm just saying there's lots of things that may look good to the world, but to God, he says, just, just good works. We stand at the Bema seat, and wood, hay, and stubble will be burnt up. Only gold, silver, and precious jewels will, will remain. And, you know, wood is something that is pretty good. You know, we like to build houses and tables and all kinds of stuff out of wood. But in a fire, wood does not hold up. There's a lot of our good works that are wood. They might even, you know, and I think of this as when I preach, there are times when I might be preaching wood as far as it's going to burn up in, in, in heaven, but other people might be receiving gold and silver and, and precious gems because the Holy Spirit takes those words and changes them in their heart to something precious. And I'm not saying that those messages are necessarily bad. They're just not <laughs> spirit-led. 
And somebody who's been walking with God can give a lot of good stuff because when you've walked with God for a long time, you start thinking closer to him and it, it's not as bad. It still might be from the flesh, but it's not as bad. Because, you know, and so we have this problem going on, and, uh, but we want to be purified. We want to take and understand God is in control of our life. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that is promised. I love this one. Hold fast what God has given you, but not because we're able to hold on. It says, for he is faithful. So in essence, I like to describe this when your kids are little and you're walking across the street, you tell your kids, hold my hand. The kids think they're holding your hand. And if you're a smart parent, who's actually holding on to that hand as you're crossing that busy street? You're holding your kid's hand so that kid tries to pull away, decide that they didn't want you to hold your hand across in the street. You're holding their hand, and this is what this verse is saying. We hold fast to him, but who's actually been the faithful one? He is. We are in Christ's hands. And for those who, and, I, and I've talked to many people who believe you can lose your salvation, they go, well, you can jump out of Jesus' hands. I'm going, yeah, and you do, and you're jumping right into the Father's hands. And you're not jumping out of his hands. Now, I don't believe that you can jump out of Jesus' hands either, but I'll give them, okay, you somehow managed to jump out of Jesus' hand. You jumped right into the Father's hands. And his hands are a lot bigger. He's not letting go of you. And, you know, it must be a sad way to believe that you can lose your salvation. That somehow you can lose eternal life. God's an Indian giver and says, I'm giving you eternal life. Oops, sorry, you don't have it anymore. It was eternal, except I took it away from you. And God doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change and, you know, it's got to be a very sad way to think. Once I've turned my life over to him completely, now I'll, you know, they'll go, well, there are some people that just act so bad that they can't know God, and I'll go, I'll, I will grant you that. They probably, they never knew him in the first place. They've disciplined their flesh a little bit, they looked good for a while, and then turned away without knowing him. But you have eternal life, you have eternal life. By definition, eternal means forever. You will not lose eternal life. And this is where we're going to run into some verses here that get very, very interesting as we get to them. All right? Uh, verse 24 says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement. Let us think about one another or, or consider to provoke to be able to entice somebody into doing what is right. Now, how do we provoke them? Primarily by the way we live. You know, we try to follow God, and that encourages others to follow God. This is why we come together as an assembly, so that we can be able to help one another. Number one, the thing we want to see is it's possible to live a godly life for, you know, mostly. <laughs> All right? And how do we do that? We see other people that seem, at least seem to be living a godly life. But we also can encourage one another when we see people that are, aren't living right, you know, saying, I, I've got your back. 
not to criticize them, but you know what? Let me help you. Let me, let me help you. When you need help, call me. What do the 12-step programs work and why do they work? Because the, the founder of AA built it upon biblical principles and it was this kind of a principle. When you're having trouble, call somebody and get help. In the church, we should be in the place where somebody's having trouble. They should be able to call some people in the church, or at least one person in the church, and saying, you know what? I am really having a hard time in this area of my life. I need prayer. I need to just have coffee and talk, whatever it might be. I need somebody to help me, to be on my side, to keep me from falling into this sin. But what do we do instead in most cases? I'm the Lone Ranger. I can get through this. And if we're really spiritual, God and I can get through this. <laughs> you know, uh, but you know what? It usually doesn't work very well. When we try to take on Satan and the temptation, we may be spiritual and saying it's God and me, but you know, it's, a lot of times we need that person that says, you can do it. You can get away, you know, you can, you can get away from this sin. Let me just be with you and pray for you. We need each other. This is why the assembling of ourselves is so important together. And that's what it says in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. This whole idea of assembling, gathering together. What has been our biggest problem over the last year and a half or so with COVID? Many churches have been banned or closed down. Some of them closed down without even being banned, like here in Arizona. Many churches ban, you know, closed down when there was no rule to, ban, to close down. Some states, they were actually forced to close down or face lawsuits, which some chose to face the lawsuits. And now what are we hearing? If you're in tune with everybody going on, they're all talking about how wonderful video church is. And I'm glad we have video church. I'm glad we have it on the, on, the, on the radio and all of that. But that is not church. That is not gathering together. There is nobody there to exhort you, to provoke you. You decide to come, you come. You don't decide to come, nobody will know the difference because nobody is missing your seat. Your seat is not empty when you're, when you're not there. And this is important. This is why we gather together. Jonathan told David, when, when David says, I won't come here because your dad's trying to kill me, and Jonathan said, your seat will be, be noticed and, it will be, and he will wonder what's happened to you. This is what's important for gathering together in the church. Somebody in the church should recognize that somebody is not there and then be able to reach out and call Make a letter, make a, make a phone call, make an email, whatever, whatever way you want to communicate, it doesn't matter, and saying, you were missed. It's important for that to be done. You were missed is very important for people. Uh, when I walked away from church, Satan used this really well. I was a workaholic, I got busy, missed about two Sundays in a row, and nobody bothered to contact me at all. The pastor, none of the church members, nobody. And Satan used it. And I'm not one to really get into the self-pity and everything, but Satan really hit me. Nobody cares if you're there or not. You've missed, you've missed two full weeks and nobody has missed you. Before long, it had been two years. 
and I'm, you know, I've shared with you, if anybody had told me when I was a teenager that there would be a time that I wouldn't go to church for a week, much less for two years, I would have told them, you are absolutely insane. There is no way I would have that, that, that that would happen to me. And then ended up, you know, being gone for a while. Just out of a pity party. Nobody cared, nobody missed, and even none of that time did anybody ever, for two years, nobody ever called and said, hey, what's going on? What's happened? I was a leader in the church. I did lots of things in the church, and nobody called. You know, uh, and it was hard. And that was part of the, you know, hey, you know, I haven't been driving the bus for, you know, for months now, and nobody's bothered to call and find out what's happened to me. Nobody's bothered to call that I haven't been in this, this uh, session over there that I used to be the teacher in. And Satan used it really hard on me. So what am I saying? For us as a body, when you notice somebody's missing, start praying for them. Give them a call. Give them a letter and say, hey, you know, we've missed you. As a pastor, I reach out. But, you know, most people look at when the pastor reaches out and says he's just doing his job. But if the church body reaches out, they're going, oh, somebody cares. Now, I'm not saying that people won't like it when the pastor reaches out, but the, you know, on, the, on one side, he's, well, he's just doing his job. He's supposed to miss us. But when that person you sit next to says, hey, you know, uh, we've missed you. What, you know, is everything okay? That's a whole different attitude that people have with it. This is why the assembling of ourselves is so important. And it says, and so much more as we see the day approaching. I am not going to settle. I am glad that we are on the internet with our messages and reaching the world and reaching anybody who can't be here. I'm glad that we have all that. But I don't want our internet to replace coming into church and if you're someplace else, going to whatever home church you have there. I listen to lots of pastors, but I need to be with the body of Christ when, it, when that opportunity opens. And this is what this whole statement is all about. Not forsaken the assembling, the gathering together of ourselves as the manner of some is, as the habit of some people, and, but exhorting one another and so much more as we see the day approaching. As we get closer and closer to the end times, it's going to be easier and easier to drift away from assembling. And like I said, I'm bothered because a lot of the big-named pastors are all excited about video online church. And, you know, I listen to them, and I'm going, have you not read your Bible? These people are not in church just because they're tuning into your broadcast. They are not in church. Now, if there is no way to be in church, I'm, I'm going to say these broadcast churches are better than nothing. But we need to be very careful because it says, and so much more as you see the day approaching, we're going to have more and more people not wanting to come into church. Why? That pastor just said something I didn't want to hear. Click. Or, ah, I'll just ignore him. It's not going to matter anyway. Nobody's going to know that I, didn't, I was here anyway. So we have no accountability to that pastor. When problems happen, who are you going to call? You call that pastor who's been online and he's got hundreds of thousands of people watching him online, try to get hold of that pastor. It's hard enough to get hold of a pastor in a big church, but at least at your church, you might be able to get them to send somebody to you. But we need to be assembled together. And this is important to be together. 
and be able to worship and have accountability to other people that know us. Now we end up into this area that's going to be a little harder to, to deal with. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. All right. So this idea of sinning willfully is the idea of having habitual sin in our life. Now, even when we say that, most of us have a weakness in our heart, in our life, that is hard for us to get over. Many of us have something that we just look at and say, God, I am having so much trouble with this, and know that we're having a problem with it. But here we get into this idea, for we sin willfully. Now, I am hoping that none of us in this room or listening online have a sin that we willfully do where we go, well, God, I know this is wrong and I'm going to keep doing it no matter what. Now, we might sin willfully once in a while, but if we're sinning willfully, habitually, we've got a bigger problem than anything else because then we have to look and say, do I really know God? Is he really my God? Am I trying to please him? Now, many of us have something that we go, we just keep falling into. And it wasn't a decision, God, I'm just going to do this because it's just a weakness that we have. It's not the willful side of things. Uh, I would believe that if you can sin willfully, God, I am just going to do that. I know it's wrong. I know that I'm not supposed to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. We might not have the relationship with God that we're expecting, that we're supposed to have. I'm just using an example of more. David's sin I don't know what was in his heart at that time. I know that he probably knew what he was doing was wrong because they said that's Bathsheba, that is Uriah's wife. No, they told him when he asked who that woman is. They said that's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. He knew that she was somebody else's wife. Did he willfully say, I'm going to sin just because I'm going to sin? Or did he just sin because that was what was in his heart at the time and he wasn't? And that, I don't know where he was at that. But even at that, what did I just say? If we willfully sin habitually, all right, because there's this tense in this word that says it's happening again and again and again and again. All right, all of us have us. I can tell you probably everybody that we talk to has had at least one thing where they just said, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because I'm just, I want to do it today for whatever reason. Because sin has pleasure in, in the short term. But if we take that sin and every time it pops up, we say, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And we do it every day, every, you know, all the time. Then we have a problem of, do I know God? But there are going to be those times when it's because I am just not in the spirit right now. I'm going to choose to do wrong. Did I know that what I was doing when I walked away from church was wrong? Well, at first, I knew I should have been assembling together. I had my excuses. I had my reasons. Deep down, I knew it was wrong. After a while, I didn't even care because I wasn't thinking about it anymore. This is the willful, purposeful sin that's habitual. And hopefully, none of us as Christians are in that place where I'm habitually, willfully sinning. And if I do, then I have to go, okay, God, do I know you? Am I in the right relationship with you? Now, there are areas where we just sin. We just find ourselves sinning. We just have a weakness in it. 
And it's not even really a conscious thought. We just find ourselves there. Not to me, whenever I think of doing something and I know it's a sin, I just know, because I know it's a sin. If I didn't know it's a sin, that would be okay. But I know it's a sin, so that's not okay. Right. Now, we may still find ourselves in that sin every once in a while, but is it been a willful, conscious decision? I am going to sin, and I'm going to sin because I want to sin. And we do that habitually. All of us have a place where sometimes we're just weak and we go, God, I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care. But if it, is it habitual? And this is what this is talking about, that habitual, constant sin basically tells us that we're not one of his children if we can do that. And then it says, after we have received the, truth, the knowledge of truth, there remains no more sacrifice. And this knowledge is epinosis, which doesn't mean anything to you, but that means full, complete knowledge. Not just partial knowledge, but I absolutely 100% knew what I was doing wrong is wrong, and I keep doing it. There is, no, there is nothing there, and God is saying that there would be no more sacrifice. Again, this goes back to, Roman, uh, to Hebrews 6, where God says, if, and you can't do it, you sin willfully, there is no more sacrifice. And this is what he's trying to say. And who is he talking to? He's talking to Jewish people who are wanting to go back to the sacrificial system. All right? They're going, well, we're not sure about this Jesus being enough thing. We want to go back and offer sacrifices. And Paul is telling them, you know better. Jesus finished the sacrifice. He's the high priest. You do not go back into the sacrificial system. You don't go back into the old way of living. And this is something he's trying to tell them. You know better. You have full knowledge of the truth. Don't go back into the old way of living. And if he says, if you do, you're denying that you really know the truth. And there's no, there's no hope for you. Uh, and in verse 27 it says, But a certain fearful looking for judgment and a fiery indignation shall, which shall devour the adversaries. Here he's bringing up the idea of God's judgment. Fiery indignation. God's anger toward those in judgment. And in verse 28 he brought them out to, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy, under the two or three witnesses. The law. If you want to live under the law, you have to keep the law completely. And this is the problem that we have when we look at our lives and we go, God, uh, I just want to live under the law for some, some strange reason. Just give me a bunch of rules to follow. Well, the only problem with that attitude is if you violate one law, you're guilty. One of the things we like to tell the prisoners, and you know, even, even outside, you know, everybody has violated the laws, they just got caught. You know, all of us have violated a law somewhere along the line that could get us in trouble if we were, you know, if nothing else, all the tickets I deserve for going five miles over the speed limit, or more, <laughs> when I don't set the cruise control. <laughs> How many of us can really think, you know, do we deserve punishment? And the answer to that is yes. We deserve punishment. We cannot keep the law of God. Even after we're saved, we will not keep all of the law of God. And this is the hard part about it. 
Most of us as Christians only think about ten commandment, the Ten Commandments. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. All right? Most of us have trouble with telling the truth all the time. You know, the little white lies that we tell, where we don't quite tell the truth. Or the worst one of all is that little catch-all one that everybody ignores. You shall not covet. Anytime you want something that is not yours... <laughs> or you envy somebody else getting something that is not yours, you have broken the, broken the laws. You know, we have a big problem. We cannot keep the law of God, and yet we want to put ourselves under the law of God and say, God, look how good I am. As long as you don't count those things over there, just, just pay attention to these things over here and ignore the rest. I am doing really good. Satan keeps wanting us to look at this is what I'm doing really good and God is saying I want to get rid of all of that sin. Not just what you think is good. That gets you into self-righteousness. You know, God, you are just so lucky you've got me. Look at all the good things I do. I don't do very many bad things. You know, I do most of these good things and you are so lucky to have me in your church. Now, we might not say it quite that way, but oftentimes we're saying, uh, you know, if you just act more like me, you'd be, you'd be a good Christian. You know, just keep your life put together like I am. And forget all the bad stuff I do. Just keep an eye on the good stuff I do. That is what the scribes and the Pharisees all said to Jesus all the time. Hey, we got our lives put together. Now, we really want to violate all the laws, but you know, we, won't, we won't do it in public. Nobody will know that we have violated any law. Now, what we do in our house is another story, and what we think is another story, and that's why Jesus said, if you have thought about murder, you have thought about adultery, you have thought about you know, coveting, you have thought about idolatry, you're guilty before God. He brought it to the place where none of us, none of us can be innocent before God. And Satan likes to go after us for all of that stuff. This is why we have to be able to grab hold of the scriptures and say, God, you have promised I am going to walk by faith in what you say. In spite of what my soul is telling me about how bad I am, in spite of how bad Satan says I'm being, or the devils, most of us aren't going to have Satan directly talking to us, but uh, you know, no matter what Satan and his minions are telling me, I am going to walk by faith that you have made me a new creature, that you have clothed me in the righteousness of Christ, and you see me as perfect. The more we see ourselves as perfect, the more we see each other the way God sees us, the better off we're going to be. Most of us are looking to be judgmental on ourselves. And if we're judgmental on ourselves, then we're judgmental on the rest of the body of Christ because we're trying to make ourselves look better than most of the other people. So we've got to find all the problems they have so that I don't feel quite so bad about myself. Instead of saying, God, these are your perfect children. Are they perfect in reality? No. But you know, Think about this. Have you ever tried to tell somebody when they're in love to open their eyes and actually see what that person is like? You know, if you've ever tried it, they're going, well, no, nothing but good. 
I've got my rose-colored glasses on, and they are, everything looks good about them. There is nothing bad about them. They, you know, I, I will be in love with them for the rest of my life. Until a few years later, when the rose-colored glasses come off, and people get to see what you actually said. God looks at us, and what does he see? He sees us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and he sees his son's righteousness. Or he sees their own righteousness if they're not in, not in the son. We need to be able to start seeing ourselves the way God sees us. That gives us a lot of victory, a lot of hope. Because when Satan attacks us, you know, it was, it was told to me in, in a previous church, when Satan knocks at the door and attacks you, Say, you know what, you're right, I, I am a terrible sinner, but I'm under the blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to heaven, and you're going to hell. Satan is going to hell. He doesn't have a hope. We are under the blood of Christ. He can look at us and say, We're, we got a problem, and you know what, I have lots of problems in my life. Lots and lots of problems in my life. But I'm under the blood of Christ. And when the Father looks at me, he says, you accepted Christ, you are... You are perfect. Our positional truth when we accept Christ is that we are perfect. And, and the greatest example I can use for us as humans, you go into a bankruptcy court owing lots of money, and the judge agrees with you that you are bankrupt, you walk out of that courtroom not owing anybody any money. Because the judge said, the, the, all the dead is gone. We go before God in salvation and God says, totally without debt. Totally without debt. Because Jesus paid the price. This is the good news for us. God sees us totally different than we see ourselves. Now, we are being sanctified. Don't get me wrong. We will spend our entire life from the moment we're saved to the moment we die being sanctified, being made who God says we were from the beginning. But the great news is the moment we die or are raptured, seems how we're close enough to the rapture that we might get raptured and not have to die, we will be glorified. God will say, okay, now you are what I said you were in the beginning. You had been getting perfected. You had been getting closer to me. You had been getting more, more righteous. But now I'm going to make you what I said you were from the beginning. And he sees us because he's outside of time. He sees us glorified. He doesn't see us being sanctified. And we can't even fathom that. God sees us totally different than what we see us because he's outside of time and he knows what we will be. So he says, I'm going to treat you by what you will be. Not as what you are. Now he is everywhere and every time, you know, he sees us in this condition, but he also he deals with us from what we will be. I love that God has a different perspective on us. His perspective is totally different than our perspective on this. And he says, if the people had violated under Moses' law, it only took two or three witnesses for them to be punished. And he said, And how much sore punishment suppose you shall be thought worthy if you have trodden under the foot of Jesus, the Son of God and have trodden 
counted the blood of the covenant wherewith we have been sanctified an unholy thing and have done despite unto the spirit of grace. Despite means insulted here. Insulted the spirit. This is... Huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Despise in King James, insult is the actual Greek word for that. Insults the spirit of grace. That's an interesting statement. We have the grace of God on us. Are we going to insult God's grace by denying what he says about us? We need to really understand this whole statement that's going on before God. God is looking at us and saying, my children are perfect in spite of what they're doing, in spite of what they are in the flesh, they are perfect. Because he says we are. Because of his grace. Now as Paul said in Romans, we do not go out and because we have grace, you know, go out and sin just because we want grace to abound. You know, Paul said, God forbid you would do that. He goes, you're going to be bad enough in sinner, you're going to be bad enough sinners that you need the grace that God is going to give you, but don't go out and try to sin so that grace will abound because it already abounds. And this is what we've got to understand because the more we start walking in a self-righteous attitude, the less we think that we need grace. God's grace. What is grace? Getting everything God has in store for us without us deserving any of it. God has made us children of him with all the blessings and position of being a child of God. All the riches that are involved with being a child of God. All the strength that involves with being a child of God. The filling of the Holy Spirit in us that gives us the strength. Technically, if we were to totally let our flesh be crucified and walk in the Spirit, we would be perfect. I think we'd be Enoch and then we'd be translated into heaven, but we would be... <laughs> We would be walking in a perfect walk with God if we just kept close to him and kept our soul, our flesh crucified. Unfortunately, we have so many areas of our flesh that we don't keep crucified or we don't let God crucify because it's special to us. Uh, in Corinthians it says, do not make a place for Satan. Literally, the word place means a beachhead. It's a military term that you make a, you get onto the beach and you start, this is where you can now attack the enemy from. It's my little stronghold. Many people, as Christians, give the enemy a stronghold in their life. God, you can have all of my life, but these three sins, I really, really like them. I'm not going to let you have those sins. I'm going to give Satan a stronghold in my life. And Satan just says, okay, good. I can ride out of this stronghold. I'm in the middle of your life. I'm just going to make life miserable for you because that stronghold isn't the only place that, that stays that way. Satan rides out from that stronghold and says, ah, I got you now. We need to make sure that all those strongholds are destroyed. 
Don't give Satan a place in your life to challenge you. Don't be insulting grace. So many Christians misuse grace when it comes to it. They will use grace as a license to sin. We don't want that. Why do most pastors not talk about grace? Because they're afraid their church is going to take the, uh, the idea of grace and go out and sin on purpose because they're going to use grace as a license to sin. If you can use grace as a license to sin, you've got bigger problems than, than your misunderstanding of grace because you're going, you don't really know God if that's the case. I look at God's grace and I am so thankful for his grace because I know that I do enough sins that if I was walking in a world of law, I'd be in trouble. I'd be in trouble. Especially knowing that God knows my thoughts. I'd really be in trouble. Because my brain goes places it's not supposed to go. You know, and so, thank God for his grace. And for his mercy. Because God is looking to help us with all of this coming in. He is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He is gracious. He gives us all the things that we don't deserve as well. But the things that he gives us are good. You know, we have a promise that we are the king's children. Jesus is building a suite of rooms in heaven for us. Now, I wonder sometimes, it took God six days to create the world. It's taken Jesus thousands of years to be able to build our home for heaven. What kind of home is he building for us? <laughs> now, part of it I know he's given us plenty of time to witness and everything, but you know, I just think sometimes, it's kind of a strange thought maybe, how special are these rooms in heaven that he is building for us that takes him more than it took him to build the entire world? I love the idea. I can't wait to get to heaven and see what he has spent all this time doing. You know, how many TV shows do we watch? You know, they redecorate an entire house in a week, you know, and, and these houses look fantastic. God has been building our decorated house for a lot longer. And he's making it very personal to each one of us. It will be the perfect suite of rooms, whatever it is to make a perfect room for you. Now, I think that when we really see God, I can imagine my first millennia or so in heaven, all I want to do is look at Jesus and say, I am here because of his grace and mercy. I would be happy just to look at him for a long, long period of time before I even went to check out my room. What will it take for us? I have heard people say, well, I can't imagine worshiping God for eternity. I can. There have been times in my worship where I feel like I have stepped into heaven for a very short period of time and if it's even a picture of what heaven's like, I'd be ready to do that for, for all of eternity. Just to be in the presence of God. You know, I don't know that I could ever get tired of just that part. You know, I could almost say, okay, guys, it's time to now go about doing your other stuff out there. You know, move on out. Go, go take care of the other stuff. You know, go, go take care of all the other stuff that we have for you to do in heaven. But he might have to do just that. Go take care, you know, go check out your rooms, go, go fellowship with one another. Go, go rule the cities that I've given you to rule. Go take care of what it is that I've told you to do. 
But I can picture just standing before God in pure joy. And I don't know if any of you have experienced that opportunity just to be feeling when you're in his presence. It doesn't happen as much as I would like it to happen on earth, but it has happened where I just feel like, God, I am in your presence. And it almost for that period of time, time stops. You know, you're like, this is perfect. This is the way it's supposed to be. I wish it happened more. But taste, the taste of being in his presence. Maybe it happens to you in prayer. Some people will happen to them in prayer. They just enter into the presence of God. Isaiah chapter 6 is a picture of Isaiah standing before the throne. It starts out, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the angels cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And the seraphim are you know, wagging around, uh, swinging around on him, and he sees you know, all of heaven, and he's awestruck at the holiness of God. And the one thing you realize is when you come into the presence of God, it also tells you how unimportant you are. Because we have problems in our life. Even when we're in the spirit, we still have problems. What is the first thing that happens all through the scriptures when somebody stands before God? They fall flat on their face. Because they recognize that God is so holy that they have no business being in front of him. And they fall before him. You know, I, I love the song, I Can Only Imagine. But you know what? I know what's going to happen when we stand before God. We're going to fall flat on our face. We're not going to be standing up there wondering, you know, how am I going to worship him? Our first instinct will be fall flat on our face. Because we're going to stand before the righteous, holy God and realize we're there by grace. We're there by his grace and his sacrifice. And we will look up at Jesus with the nail prints in his, in his hands and the spear in, in his side. And I don't know if he's going to carry the bruises and the, and the beating of the whip or not, but he's going to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We will see the cost of our entrance into heaven and be humbled that we're there only because of what he did for us and be in awe of how much God loves us. And I hope we understand that God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loves the world and paid the debt so that if they would just choose him, they'll be having everlasting life. If they don't choose him, then they will have everlasting death. And this is the thing. God created man to be an eternal being forward into the future. We had a beginning, and then we will be eternal from that point. Our choice on earth determines where we will spend eternity. And that is mind-boggling to me. You know, we spend a very small portion of our existence on earth, 
and it will determine where we will spend eternity for that period of time on earth. And so we're going to stop here. I went well over our, our time. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to be with us and guide us. Lord, help us to see us the way you see us. Lord, help us to learn to walk in your grace, in your belief system in us. And we just thank you and all that you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.